What a rich time this is for us in the book of John. We continue our study this morning by starting in chapter 6. And as we do that, I want to remind you that last week we saw the Father's testimony of the deity of Jesus Christ specifically through four vehicles or four sub-sources. And why? Why do we have that fourfold testimony rooted really singularly in the foundational testimony of the Father? So that we might know that we have believed in Jesus and have eternal life. The goal ought to be, really the goal is, by John in that passage, for those who listen, for those who would hear, for those who have ears to hear, to be certain that they're trusting in the true Jesus. Not the Jesus of someone's fabrication. A man who is not God. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That, by the way, is how the Jesus of Mormonism started. He started as a man who became a god. You might call him the man-god. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so when you endeavor to minister to your Mormon friends, it's critical that you deal with who Jesus is. Some of you will remember that my friend John Fallahy was here several months ago. And John and I talked a lot about how best to minister to Roman Catholics whose faith is rooted in false doctrine and a false gospel. This is not some sort of backyard barbecue argument about whose church is better. The reality is that the Reformation took place because the church at the time, other than the true residual church, the true remnant church, which was very small for about a thousand years, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic organization, placed its faith in salvation by faith plus works. That's a false gospel. Read Galatians in a cursory reading and you'll, you'll see that that's really what Paul is focusing on. And he says that those who are committed to teaching a false gospel are anathema. They are accursed. And so in that state of being accursed, what's best for them? Well, my friend John Fallahy told me what I had already been thinking. And it could be that you get all scattered talking about all kinds of doctrines when you try to help a, a Roman Catholic. But you know what they need to know? They need to know Jesus and not in a platitudinal, sentimental way, you know, where you just say, you know, you just need Jesus. They're going to go, well, I know that. They know that, but they need to know and understand the Jesus of the Bible, who is, in fact, the God-man. And so looking through chapter 5 last week, we saw that the four vehicles of testimony by the Father were John the Baptist, and yet Jesus said, I don't rest or trust in any man's testimony. He didn't need John's testimony. The point was that John's testimony was not John's testimony. It was the Father's testimony. John was a mouthpiece for the Father. The second vehicle, or the second sub-witness, was Christ's works. The works of Christ display the fact that Jesus comes from God. He was sent from eternity past to bear flesh and to represent God the Father and to display the fact that he came from him by doing good works, particularly the miracles that affirmed or confirmed his deity. The third vehicle, the third sub-witness, 
was Scripture. It is Scripture. In fact, that's what we have today. The book of Hebrews in chapter 1 tells us that we had the prophets, we had the law, but now we have the Son. But ultimately now we have the Word of the Son, the Word of the Father. And so the Word that we have, according to that same book, Hebrews 4 verse 12, separates soul from spirit. It separates the person right down to the core of who he is. This is why it really is so very, very disturbing. When you teach truth, when you explain truth to someone and they scoff, the person who does not want to hear about the character of God, who scoffs repeatedly as if they know everything, as if they're an expert in the Bible, they turn away from the clear and sound realities of what God says about himself in his word. This is why this is such a critical issue. They're rejecting God when they reject his word. The fourth vehicle, the fourth mouthpiece, was a sub point or a sub-witness of the third witness, and that is Moses. And as you know from your memory verse for this morning, it is Moses who they should have believed. And Jesus said to them, if you had believed him, and they're going, what do you mean if we believe him? Of course we believe him. No, you got everything he said wrong. You focused on the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. You strained the gnat and swallowed the camel. Jesus said about them. If you had believed what he said, you would believe me, but you don't believe me because you don't believe him. So they twisted his word, they twisted Moses' words, and so of course they would twist Jesus' words. And so Jesus' deity was more than adequately testified. This testimony was confirmed by his doing of multiple miracles. He turned water into wine at a wedding in chapter 2. He single-handedly drove out the thousands of people and animals from the temple. He healed a government official's son who was a heartbeat away from death. He healed the man who suffered from paralysis for 38 years. And now he feeds a few thousand people with a little boy's lunch. That's a miracle. Remember how many times you've heard me say things like, stop calling those things miracles. Stop talking as if miracles are happening today. God does great things today, but he's not feeding 5,000 people with a couple of pieces of fish and some bread, right? You don't see those things happen. You don't see God restoring limbs. So don't diminish the significance of the few miracles that are in the Bible by, you know, when you find a parking spot at your favorite store, a miracle. That's not a miracle. That's wonderful when that happens. You know, my wife will tell you that's wonderful when that happens. you got six kids with you, that's wonderful. But it's not a miracle. You might call it a great work of God, and I wouldn't oppose that. But it is not like the parting of the Red Sea. So as he feeds several thousand people here with one small lunch, this shows itself to be one more affirmation or really confirmation of his deity. Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's recorded in every gospel. So that's significant, isn't it? Of all the miracles in the scripture, this is the only one other than the resurrection that's recorded four times, uh, once each, in each of the gospels. Well, let's turn there now to John 6 as we jump into this miracle in an effort to understand how we might know the difference between eternal blessings and earthly blessings and find ourselves resting in eternal rather than earthly blessings. John 6, 
verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We would do well to remember that in John 20, verse 30 to 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the miracles are not only a confirmation of his deity, they're a confirmation of his ability to save. And those who would read the record of what he has done would have to say, this is God. Look at the manifold testimony, the multiple witnesses who agree in amazing form with what uh, the Bible says about who he is and what he accomplished. Well, this morning you'll see four attitudes that reveal the society's shallowness and the Savior's superiority. We're looking at this so that we will trust in him and not in earthly blessings. And again, much like John 5, you might not have thought that the first time you read through chapter 6, but if you haven't seen it in your study of chapter 6, I think you'll see it this morning, that what the Lord is revealing here is that there are those who hope in the here and now you are well aware of the fact that people are leaving the state of California in droves. Why? For the dollar. For some sort of physical blessing. When, in fact, if you're involved in our church or another church like ours, then the spiritual blessings that come with ministering in the mission field of California bring immeasurable opportunity for eternal storing up of treasure. Yeah, this is really heavy on my heart, as you can imagine. I think I told you last week, I talked to a local pastor who's become a friend, that over 100 people have left his church in the last year to get out of the state of California. I know a politician who talked a big talk as if he was all about California, and after losing two elections, he left. 
and started a website to get people to leave California. What kind of loyalty is that? Now he's making money off of helping people leave the state of California. Well, I'm not a politician, and I'm not here to tell you you need to stay in California. I'm just here to tell you that you need to think about what the purpose of your life is. Is it to have a better home, more land, a place where you can raise chickens or whatever it is that you want to do? I mean, nothing wrong with all that stuff. But the ultimate hope for us has to be in the eternal Jesus Christ and the blessing that he has granted to us by making a mark here on earth that lasts in heaven. Well, the first thing I want you to see in this text this morning is the crowd's fascination with temporary signs. We'll see the crowd's fascination with temporary signs. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a small town on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that Herod had established. And so in the earlier gospel records, you won't see the name Tiberias because over time, the Sea of Galilee took on the name Tiberias from that town. That's why you see that disparity there between the Gospels. So Jesus is purposed at this point to go to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Kinnereth so that he might engage in this miracle. It says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's a poor motive. That's the, let me just tell you, that's the wrong motive, to follow the spectacle. And Jesus, of course, reveals this about them. John gives us that information, that that's why they were following him, because of the signs that he had performed. Now, you know that from watching TBN, whether you've watched it once or a hundred times, but if you watch it a handful of times, what you've seen is that that spectacle is the draw. And it's always phony. I have a friend that I graduated from seminary with who sadly has embraced the sign gifts, which do not exist today. And I watched a video that he posted on his social media page where he wanted people to think that a woman's leg actually grew. Now, if, if you don't know this, your legs actually move up and down in your hip joint. And so it's quite possible to move it up an inch and a half or so and down maybe an inch and a half or so. And that's exactly what they did. Chicanery. It's a shell game. And it's used in a way that gets money from other people who want the same thing. John mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata earlier today. Is there a godlier woman than Johnny Erickson Tata? She doesn't have enough faith to be healed? Is that the problem? That's the theology of the charismatic movement. There's so many problems with the charismatic movement, but the primary fundamental issue is the matter of the sign gifts, believing that they are still in practice today. Why do they believe that? A handful of reasons. One is that they don't know what they actually were, specifically the gift of tongues. And so when they hear gibberish or when they spout gibberish, they want you to think that that's the gift of tongues. Tongues in the Bible was never gibberish. It was always an unlearned, known language. In every case. So when someone spoke in tongues, they were perhaps, well, just to illustrate it for our time, speaking your language, and they had no idea how to do that prior to that. That was the work of the Spirit to enable somebody to speak a language that other people could, in fact, understand in their home or their 
mother tongue. That's a miracle. That gift, that miraculous gift, no longer exists, which is why when you hear someone today speak in what they would call tongues, listen closely for whether or not there is a rhythmic, repeated pattern. The same things over and over, and the better they get, the more patterns they develop. But listen closely, record it, listen back to it over and over again, and tell me whether or not they're repeating the same nonsense over and over and over. That's what's going on there. And there are those who just want a sign. That's what these people wanted. They wanted a sign. You remember back in chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus said to the governmental official whose son was ill, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But Jesus, in his grace, gave him a sign. He healed his son from a distance. You know, the Old Testament counterpart to this is Gideon. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm not quite sure what to do, so I'm going to lay out a fleece. God never instructed Gideon or anybody to do that. And God only showed his grace by using it in weak, spiritually impotent Gideon's life. Gideon was a weak man. And rather than just trusting and believing in what the angel of the Lord told Gideon directly, Gideon said, you know what, Um, I'm going to lay out this fleece, and if it's wet and the ground is dry, then I'll know it's of the Lord. Oh, okay, thank you, Lord, for doing that. Now let's reverse it and do it one more time, and then I'll believe it if that happens. See, that's a weak person who only wants a sign. Before I moved to Southern California from Texas, I knew that I wanted to go to seminary. I'd originally applied to Dallas Seminary, which at the time was considered the Cadillac of seminaries, and my best friend had just graduated from there, and I thought, that's where I'll go. And then after I had applied and was getting all excited about leaving, I had told my boss I, I was leaving, and, and uh, folks were excited for me. I was, uh, just happened to look down at the magazine, and I saw a picture of John MacArthur. I'd never seen a picture of John MacArthur before, but it said the Master Seminary, and it said his name. You've got to be kidding me. John MacArthur has a seminary? So that day, I applied. Well, now I've got a dilemma because I've got close friends in Houston. I've got some friends in Dallas, four hours apart. Los Angeles, not so much. So I spent three days in a friend's driveway waiting for God to speak to me waiting for God to give me a word, because I had heard that that's how it works, rather than just trusting the Lord and doing what I wanted. Now, like you may have experienced from time to time, in that moment, I didn't know what I wanted. Both really good seminaries. Staying in my car for three days, you know, waiting for God to, you know, write it on the window, or, you know, tell me in a dream, or have a friend say, this is what you need to do, or something like that. Nothing, man, I felt abandoned. Because that's, in my mind, the way it must work for people who really walk with the Lord. So, this might be a surprise to you, but I went to Dallas. And I was there for three days. I enrolled. I was in class. And during my time in Dallas, some things became clear to me. Nothing against Dallas Seminary at that time except for where they were headed and now where they are. Tragically, some of the things that they've espoused were the result of the fact that there was way too much theological diversity in the faculty. 
The other real issue is that the Master Seminary was on the campus of and really a ministry of a local church that's shepherded by godly men. So after three days, I went to the administration. I said, thank you for my three days. I'm headed for Los Angeles. And a guy sarcastically said to me, well, tell John MacArthur hello for me. And I'm like, I'm never going to get to meet John MacArthur. And lo and behold, I found out that John MacArthur is actually a pastor who actually knows the people in his flock, and I got to know him quite well. But I was waiting for the Lord to give me a word when what I should have been doing is simply trusting him rather than looking for a sign. You know, that's the history of my pursuit of signs, wanting signs and wonders. And then I read Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But it's so easy to focus on the second half, right, and not really be obedient to the Lord I know so many, many people, and, and maybe you could say the same thing, who, who are flailing in life. You know, they're chasing a dream that really has no value at all. Why? Because they are not delighting themselves in the Lord, but they are trying to get what is the desire of their heart. They've abandoned the church. They've abandoned Christ. They've abandoned all things spiritual, the spiritual disciplines on down the line that they want to believe that this dream is something that they need to pursue. Nothing wrong with pursuing something that you really want to do. But the only time that that really makes any sense at all is when you are genuinely delighting yourself in the Lord, which means being faithful to your local body. Worshiping Christ, serving Christ amongst a body of believers. That was a little bit of an offshoot right there, but it really is essential to our study because it's the nature by which those who were following Jesus were living in the moment. Matthew 16, verse 1 says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Give us a sign. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. How was it that they didn't know that he was the Messiah? They didn't have eyes to see. They were dull of hearing. They were dull of sight because of their spiritual hard-heartedness. He goes on and says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, which had already been given. You have the signs. You have the signs recorded in the Scripture. That's all you need. So he left them and departed. You're going to see that pattern. He says what he needs to say, and he leaves for particular reasons. When Jesus had said these things in John 12, 36, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. I'll make you think of the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man pleads with Abraham, send Lazarus to me to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Abraham says, you had your opportunity when you were on the earth for good things. Well, in that case, then and go to my brothers, my five brothers, and tell them of the hotness of hell. And he says, no, they have the law and the prophets. And it was an indictment on the society's desire to want a sign. 
This is manifest so much in our culture, in our, our religious culture. People don't want to dig deep into the scripture. They don't want to be counseled. They don't want to counsel. They don't want to have deep, rich, critical, vibrant relationships. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do and kind of dip their toe into the water of the church whenever they feel like it. So the decisions that they make are born out of a selfish, willful intent to just do what feels right with no real wisdom or discernment to know what's best. In John 12, the text goes on to say, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. I would heal them. If what? If they would turn. So those who harden their hearts, those who blind themselves, those who dull their hearing, experience the greater fullness of that when the Lord adds to that, and yet he still says, if you would turn. And yet the trappings of the world so imprison so many who won't turn Jesus would leave those people in the same way at the conclusion of this miraculous event and there's a crystal clear reason for that but it starts with their interest in signs they want a euphoric experience. And you know this, you've probably had more than a few conversations with more than a few people who have obviously displayed the fact that they believe themselves to be the standard of truth. It ultimately comes down to what they have experienced rather than what we know in the Word. Again, that's one of the fundamental distinctions between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. As you know, with the Pope recently communicating that there is no hell, now the Vatican's trying to put their best spin on that. They've been doing this for the last three or four years, ever since this Pope has really kind of gone off the rails of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism being off the rails of biblical Christianity, though... One of the primary distinctions is that it's all rooted in tradition. A true Catholic will, will tell you that. Biblical Christianity is completely rooted in the Scripture. My experience, your experience, those are all worship opportunities. None of them are given for the purpose of understanding Scripture. We're to approach the Bible with a sound, honest hermeneutic believes what it says with a rich understanding of the culture and the language and the time in which it was written. So the crowd's fascination with temporary signs is the first thing we see in our text that, that should motivate us to want to know the difference between earthly blessings and eternal blessings. The second point is Philip and Andrew's faith in temporary sustenance. I want you to see Philip and Andrew's faith in temporary sustenance. They're both pretty obvious about this. They hoped in earthly things. Watch this. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This, by the way, is the second of the three Passover experiences that Jesus has while he's on earth. And so it's a significant time. The Passover being a time of commemoration of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, the freedom from the prison of Egypt. Some of you know this really well because you're teaching in our children's ministry. If you're using the family devotional book that we provide for you, then you've probably gone over it around your own kitchen table with your kids like I have. And this has been just great discussion with my children, helping them understand the power of the resurrection of Christ in that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. It is no coincidence, it was no accident that Jesus was doing what he was doing during this second Passover. It is no coincidence, it is no accident that he was killed during Passover. That he might be displayed as the ultimate Lamb of God, through whom, by whom, God passed over those who placed their trust in the blood. Right? That's what the Israelites were doing. They would sacrifice the lamb. They would eat the lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. And they would do all that in commemoration. That was the Passover feast in each person's home. But listen to this. In each home, there was a lamb that stayed there for a few days before they ate it. You say, well, that sounds really, that sounds terrible. I mean, wouldn't the kids have gotten used to it? They probably would have named it. You know, I can just see Silas going, what? They had time to develop an affection for that lamb. What do you think happened with the people who walked with Jesus? You know, so much so in the same way that a child wouldn't want to believe that that little, wonderful, cute baby lamb is going to be dinner. In the same way that he would not want to believe that, the disciples refused to believe it, even though Jesus told them multiple times, I came here to die. Be raised again on the third day. And as it's happening, they're in utter disbelief, almost as if they were saying, why didn't you tell us? Why? Because of the affection they had developed for him. That affection should be what you and I have developed for him. When we think of the Passover, we really ought to be thinking of the hope that is provided for us in that God has passed over us because of the blood of the lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed, the lamb for whom you and I should have ultimate, pure, and perfect, worshipful affection. Lifting up his eyes, verse 5, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, and Jesus goes into teaching mode here, motivational teaching mode, expository teaching mode, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And you want to say, Philip, have you been paying attention? This is the man that turned water into the sweetest, richest wine in the history of the world. You don't remember that? If he can do that, can he make lunch for a few people? A lot of people? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here. Can you hear it? There's a boy here 
who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, Philip had pointed to the idea that even if we had eight months' worth of salary, we couldn't buy enough lunch for 15 to 25,000 people. Why do I say 15 to 25,000 people? 5,000 men would likely mean 5,000 women and very likely another five to 15,000 children. It's a lot of people. So Philip's testimony is, you know, look, this isn't going to work. I mean, even if we had that much money, his point is that's a lot of money and we don't have that much. Even if we did, it wouldn't be enough. So he's displaying his hope in money. Ultimately, in sustenance, you know, we need food. We need earthly sustenance. You need to be able to feed them. You need to have food that's been grown and cooked and prepared. And we don't have it. And if we had enough money, which we don't, it wouldn't be enough money. Andrew, trying to think out loud here, I think. You know, Lord, there's a boy who's got some food, but this is not a drop in the bucket. This wouldn't make a difference. And by the way, when you and I think of loaves, we think of, you know, what you buy at the store. It's about this big and it's fluffy. A loaf would have been like a cracker. It was unleavened. It was like, you know, a saltine or so. So, so nothing compared to what was needed. And as you remember from Matthew, Jesus says, don't store up your treasure where moth and rust can destroy and thieves break in and steal. But this was the mindset, not only of the mob that was following Jesus for a sign, it was the mindset of the disciples. See, how is that possible when they've been with him all this time? Store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy, thieves can't break in and steal. But their mind is on the earthly. Their mind is on that which makes logical, non-miraculous sense to them. So Philip and Andrew's faith was in temporary sustenance. They displayed the spiritual inability to think and believe in light not only of what God can do, but what he has proven he can do by having done it. Jesus, the God-man of miracles, had certainly proven with all that he had done that he could provide enough food for 5,000 people or even 25,000 people. But Andrew and Philip had not yet come around to the place of any measure of spiritual maturity. And, you know, I can't help but ask at this point, you know, how, how does that affect you? How, does it affect, how should it be affecting us? Nothing wrong with, you know, storing up enough for retirement. In, in the financial series we're, we're going to be doing soon, we're going to be helping you with that, helping you with budgeting, helping you with debt freedom, helping you with all those things. Why? to be the best resource for the glory of God to reach the loss that you possibly can. As you're storing up treasure 
in heaven, yeah, you need to be careful to store up some resources so that when you get to the place that your working power, your earning power is no longer what it once was. That's a reality of life, and you don't want to be a burden on the church or the state. And so be faithful, be responsible, be reasonable, but ultimately do what you need to do on a base level and don't go ridiculously beyond that so as to find yourself living in a mansion on earth one day that's going to burn. Build your mansion in heaven. The disciples had not arrived at the place where that was even on their radar. The third thing I want you to see in light of all this nonsense is Jesus' compassion for his fans' dilemma. We'll see Jesus' compassion for his fans' dilemma. Now, you know what a fan is. Why did I choose the word fan? Fan is short for fanatic. It's someone who is obsessed with someone else for what that someone else can provide. Sports fans, movie star fans, rock star fans all love what the object of that fanaticism can do for them. Famous people conjure up deep emotional feelings of temporary satisfaction that only lasts until the next loss or the next bad movie or the failed music career. It's fleeting fulfillment vicariously of their dreams. It's a vicarious effort to live out one's dreams through someone else who's famous. For the team that wins the Super Bowl, the thrill only lasts a year, and then the fan typically becomes extra critical, explaining in detail what went wrong as if he or she could have and would have done better in their idol's shoes. You know, that football coach who kind of went down the drain because he didn't win 14 games that year and go on to win the Super Bowl. This is a parasocial phenomenon. It's not real. It's a one-sided relationship, not a mutual relationship. It's a lopsided engagement. Really, it's idolatry. It's a form of worship, but even in this case, this case with Jesus, where Jesus is the object, it's still idolatry, even if it's worship of him, because it's not really the him that he is. It's a redefinition of who he is. What do I mean by that? It's for all the wrong reasons. It's seeking after a sign. They wanted the sign maker. They wanted the miracle worker. They wanted to be there for the ecstasy, for the spectacle, for the euphoria. And if that weren't to continue, then they were out. If it got difficult, then the signs that they had seen would prove not to have been enough. Abraham saying, if there were to be a sign to the rich man, they still would not believe. And that proved to be true, didn't it? With so many people. What sign did they have? The sign of Jonah, which is a foreshadowing of what? The resurrection. That Christ would be brought back from the dead. Even if someone were brought back from the dead, Abraham said, they will not believe, and they didn't believe, and people today don't believe with the essential basic historical reality of the resurrection. No historian in their right mind would deny the resurrection. I'm talking secular historians. That would be occupational suicide. No one would give any validity or any credence to their work. 
It's a historical reality. These people were idolaters. They worshipped the person that they wanted Jesus to be. All about the spectacle and nothing about holiness. All about the euphoria and nothing about repentance. And yet, he showed them compassion. In Mark's account of this miracle, he says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is, I think, a throwback to the words of the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen, who said to the king at the time, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. So this is more like a people without a leader, a nation with no ruler, much like a non-people who happened to be in a group together with no direction but chasing the wind. Got nothing going on, so let's chase the miracle worker. Let's go where there's a sign. Let's go where there's something exciting happening. In verse 10, it says that Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted His compassion was expressed in lavish, provisionary love. Much like the Lord showed to the Israelites as they wandered through the desert by giving them manna and quail. They didn't deserve that. They did nothing to earn it, to work for it. God granted it. He had granted exactly enough, and so that they wouldn't work on the Sabbath, He granted on that day enough for the next day. He gave them just exactly what they needed. Told them, don't store up more, I'll provide for you. In this case, he told them, keep what's left over. And there was not only enough for everyone there, there was enough for each of the disciples to hang on to. They ate as much as they wanted. That would have been unusual. Because food in this time frame was scarce for most people. To get your hands on a meal that was enough, that was satisfying, it was filling, it was unusual. But in this case, when Jesus performed a miracle with a perfect display and a perfect presentation of a meal, it was as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, it says... He told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. The bread that he provided with seeming endless provision looked ahead to his words in John 6, just a few verses down the road. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the concept of the basic necessity of bread, the physical reality of the basic earthly need for sustenance, points forward to the most basic, spiritual, eternal need in the bread of life. So Jesus calls himself the bread of life. In so much as you need physical sustenance temporarily, you need me eternally. That was his message. And he spoke that message because he knew their hearts. He knew that their heart was driven by the spectacle, by the sign. You don't need the sign. So many people see signs, and yet they still don't believe. In verse 51, he says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. In verse 14 of our text in John 6, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is bad thinking. It's bad hermeneutics. What do I mean by that? They should have already known. In Acts 20, verse 22, it says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. They had so far rejected so much of what he said and would continue to reject so much of what he said, but it was the sign in which they rested. It was the sign in which they hoped, and yet Jesus showed compassion on his temporary fan base, his temporary followers. That's a good and gracious and loving and kind Savior who grants compassion to those who don't deserve it but need it. By the way, there's no one who's earned it. There's no one who deserves the compassion and the kindness of Christ. No one. But he grants it to all those who will turn their sinfulness over to him. They should have known, and yet they hoped in this world. Even disciples hoped in this world. They hoped in the ability to provide physical food in a natural, normal way, which in one case, according to Andrew, meant we just need more money to go buy more food. How are we going to feed these thousands of people? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, whatever you will eat or whatever you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Set your mind on things above. Be responsible. Do what you need to do. And trust the Lord to provide what you need. But look forward to what he has for you eternally. Set your mind on the kingdom of God. We see that Jesus' compassion is poured out even upon those who reject him and want for a sign rather than for holiness. The fourth thing I want you to see from our text this morning that will lead to a better ability to discern between the pursuit of earthly blessings and the pursuit of eternal blessings is Jesus' confidence in his Father's design. Jesus' confidence in his Father's design. The mob really shows their ignorance here. They were looking for a king in the Davidic line, but they weren't interested in the true work of the prophet, even though they were willing to call him the prophet. Behold, he is the prophet. They weren't interested in the work of the prophet. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It wasn't his time. This experience is quite similar to that which took place in the desert in Matthew 4, where Satan tempted Jesus with a shortcut to glory. Why don't you just make bread? You know, why don't you just call angels down? And in each case, the Lord returned to the eternal word, and he quoted Scripture to remind himself of the hope that he has in his Father's will Multiple times, as you know, and we've looked at it many, many times, Jesus said, I came not to do my will, but my Father's will. I and the Father are one. I cannot do that which is not my Father's will. It was not his time to be made king. And so he not only resisted the temptation, he just left. He walked away from the moment during which they were going to seize him and make him king wasn't the right timing. This passage really calls us to trust in the Lord, not just for strength, for physical sustenance, physical stamina, but for illumination of the mind to be humble. So I want to ask, how are you displaying your level of trust in Him? Are you trusting in him the way he trusted in the Father in the moment that there was a shortcut at his hand? Remember, it's so important when we think about these things related to Jesus' example for us that we understand that what he did in the flesh, he did as a man. 
and he exhibited spiritual dependence upon the Father, which is an example for us. We are to do what he did. This level of trust is displayed for us in 1 Peter 2, beginning with verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's really what Peter is about. Living a life in the midst of suffering while pursuing, trusting the Father. That's what Jesus did. That's what we are called to do. He's our example in that. He, rather than returning evil for evil, insult for insult, chose to trust in the one who judges justly. He himself then bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's where it says, by his wounds you have been healed. It's a spiritual healing that takes place as a result of the death of Christ that provides forgiveness for our sins and then calls us to the responsibility to trust the Father, to turn our attention to him because he never judges unjustly. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And now here, there's a different take on this. Peter, in the previous passage, was dealing with how to trust the Father in the midst of suffering. But that's not really what's going on in our text in John 6, is it? Jesus isn't trusting the Father in that moment in his suffering. He's trusting the Father in the moment where he would be falsely and wrongly exalted. You're going to have both experiences. You have had both experiences. Whereas the temptation to become so discouraged and really disabled in your suffering that you don't trust the Father. But here he says to the elders of the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He's speaking to shepherds who have constant opportunity to lord their authority over people and misuse that position. Listen closely. And when the chief shepherd appears, if you're faithful to that task of shepherding the flock of God among you without lording it over them, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Then in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It was not the proper time for Jesus to be exalted as king, and so he slipped away. How does that example impact you and me if the god man can step away so that he's not wrongly and falsely and idolatrously exalted as king in the wrong moment then surely you and i could give consideration to how we may have failed in that regard but certainly need to trust the father to produce humility in us
so that he in his perfect timing would exalt us at the proper time. Verse 7 in 1 Peter 5 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Whether it's the anxiety of suffering or the anxiety of being exalted, worshipped, we must humble ourselves. We must look to the Father. We must trust Him even as the Savior did. As you know, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come unto me. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And He talks about taking on that yoke that's light. The burdens are easy. And He says about Himself, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And then if you look at Mark 10, you see this argument amongst the disciples who've walked with him for a while. We're talking about who's the greatest. And this is after Jesus explained that he was going to die and be resurrected. And they're asking, who's the greatest? And Jesus' response is to say, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the example he displays in his willingness not to choose the wrong timing. Jesus' confidence is in his Father's design. He's patient in the circumstance, waiting for God's right timing because he trusts in him and his perfect will. I hope that our time together in this passage will be helpful to you and to me, that we would be quick to search out first eternal blessings, understanding the message of the bread, the provision of bread and fish for that many people displayed his miraculous ability to provide reconciliation through himself to the Father. And yet there were those who just enjoyed the ecstasy of it all. And that's all they wanted. May it be that we will not fall into that category of just wanting another sign, wanting to have writing on the wall, wanting it to come in a dream, but rather to trust the Father who has given us his word and who has given us his Son. Father, thank you for our Savior who performed the miraculous that only he could perform, and that in so doing, he displayed his greatness, he displayed his deity, he displayed his ability to overcome natural impossibility by performing the miraculous, by providing. And Lord, may we trust you that you have provided all that is necessary for us in this lifetime that we would endeavor to obey all the commands of our Savior, that we might have the privilege of helping others do the same. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.